Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our guest speaker today is a multifamily syndicator and founding partner of Mac Assets. He oversees a real estate brokerage serving the South Denver area and is currently a general partner and investor in over a thousand doors. Here to discuss asset management and best practices to maximize your rental income, please welcome David McElwain. All right. Today we have David McElwain with us. He is founding partner of Mac Assets and owner of Colorado Realty Experts. David, thank you so much for being on the show. You know, we kind of always start out with kind of how did you get where you are today? Well, thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. You know, I got to where I am today with a very long and circuitous road. I started in the advertising business in early 90s. And from there to here, had a really good career in sales in the advertising business. Went through a divorce and could no longer live on an airplane. And so instead of living on an airplane, I decided to go into real estate. I got my real estate license. After the divorce was over, I decided to take the proceeds from my sales career and buy and flip houses. Got my license to do that and to not be anything but a flipper. And Denver is where I live. And in 2014, the flipping industry I decided was totally upside down and there was no significant margin. So I became a residential broker just as a way to put food on the table. Opened my own brokerage a couple of years later. And while that's a fine business, it didn't excite me. And one day I was walking through an investment seminar and I was looking for clients to work with on the residential side. And I heard somebody talking about, if I can buy one door, I can buy a hundred doors. And I sat down. In the advertising business, I sold radio ads in either one city, 10 cities, 50 cities, 100 cities. And where I made my success was in selling large national programs in multiple cities at scale. And so when this investor said, I buy 100 door apartment buildings or greater, I literally sat down and didn't move for an hour. And in the first three minutes of sitting down, I had already decided what I was going to do and I was changing my business exponentially. Fast forward from there to here, I'm still a broker. I do some brokerage for friends and family and deals that excite me, but I now am a general partner or passive investor in over a thousand apartment doors. And the scale was important to me. What I realized was that when I was in advertising, I did the exact same amount of work to sell one city for one client. I had to go through the same sales process, the same operational process all the same processes that I would do if I sold a hundred cities. The difference was zeros on the contract, zeros on my commission statements. It's exactly the same with real estate. The more doors, the more zeros, the more zeros, the greater the scale, the greater the payout. And so that's how I got to where I am today. Does that help a little bit? 
Yes, yes, it does. Very interesting. So what else about more zeros do you like? <laughs> well, it's fascinating. When I was in my first job out of business out of college was at Leo Burnett, which was at the time the world's number one ad agency. And I was buying network television for United Airlines. And I was also buying some very specific segmented pieces of inventory for United Airlines. And I had a guy come into my office from New York City and he sold for the New York Lawyers Trade Association Journal. And he was trying to get me to buy ads. And he used to say, more is better for everyone. And I was a young kid and I was 23 years old and thought I knew everything in its brother. And I looked at him and I'm like, what are you talking about? And then he went through this three-minute diatribe where he shared with me that more advertising that you spend, David, for United Airlines means more seats filled by lawyers and first class for United Airlines, which then means that there's a higher ticket price sold for United Airlines, which means that United Airlines makes more revenue, which means the employees are paid more money. And oh yeah, by the way, Leo Burnett gets bigger budgets, which means that David McElwain gets a pay raise. So more is better for everyone. Trickle-down economics at its quintessential finest detail in 1992. More, more is better for everyone. I love it. And it took me a while to really understand that premise, but I did. And so when I heard this guy speaking about multifamily, more is better with everyone, for everyone. A high tide rises all boats. And the idea that if you can buy one, you can buy a hundred with people made perfect sense to me. And the scale just, it was instant for me. You, you have those rocket ship moments where your, your mind takes off and mine took off that day. I literally walked up to the speaker after that and asked him five questions and made my decision on the spot. Awesome. Well, yeah. it's amazing that like in the short span of what, seven or eight years, you've grown to a thousand doors. So there's a lot of work associated with managing those. I'm sure you probably, do you have third-party management managing them or is it? Uh, yeah. So definitely third-party management. I started with my own duplex. Uh-huh. Right after I got divorced, I did my own duplex and I managed it myself on purpose. And the reason I did it myself was to make sure I could go through all of the experiences. And my father was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Reserves, and he taught me that you got to, in order to be a leader, you got to go through what the guy goes through on the ground. And so I wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing. And my success in the advertising business came from leading from the front. I started with a phone book and I became a top tier sales representative by doing the work that the other sales team was doing. And it's the same with operations and property management. So I got that duplex and I ran it soup to nuts. And I ended up doing a renovation. I ended up doing an eviction. I ended up doing a suicide with a really ugly turn of events. I had a long-term tenant. I had health issues. I had collection issues. I had maintenance issues. I had all the issues that everybody talks about in the tenants, toilets, and termites, right? I never had termites because it's Colorado and termites really aren't a risk for us as much as it is in other parts of the country. Lucky. <laughs> Grateful. Grateful, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, but the tenants and the toilets, got them. Still, still um, have <laughs> It's present, right? And from doing that experience, I realized that that's a valuable skill. And... I also realized I didn't want to do it every day. And people talk about, I want to be able to get to 10 doors so I can offload property management. And back to that lightning bolt moment, if you buy a hundred units, you're not going to do your property management yourself. And so I use third-party property management with all of our assets. Yes. So 
growing to a thousand doors. That is great. Like, can you tell us like, and I think what we want to talk about today is asset management and like right. what we kind of define, you know, property management, you're giving the notices, you're collecting rents, you're dispersing monies for vendors and that sort of stuff. But like the asset management, I think is more of like, at least for us, when we come into a project, there is some, maybe some construction aspects or Maybe there's some monetization of some Mm -hmm. other types of scenarios. Like if you monetize parking, I will tell you, we just did a project. Chris had an incredible idea. We found a property that didn't have any backyards. And so we put in fences and then offloaded the landscape cost onto the tenants by giving them backyards. It's like a huge win-win deal. But like really managing that sort of project like i guess kind of can you kind of tell us like maybe a little bit about your process and some of the projects that you've managed and kind of like after you get them done like how that works and what you do yeah so the process really starts with acquisition right so i typically buy and my partners and i typically acquire added value b and c properties where there's a heavy lift And we can have a whole dialogue around that thought process as the interest rate system changes and evaluating what I'm going to do with my business on a go forward basis. But for the last several years, we bought heavy load value adds. And I view it as I'm acquiring two things. I'm acquiring a business and I'm acquiring a piece of real property. And the real property acquisition is really simple. David, real quick, just for our listeners and maybe even my sake, what do you consider a heavy lift? A heavy lift is where I want to change rents by 150 to $200 a door, and we're going to go in and do some renovations that actually are more than just paint or paint and carpet. Okay. And it does depend on the property, right? So in one example, one of my partners, and I'm a partnership where we bought a 400-unit property, and 50% of them were vacant and gutted, and the wires were, all the copper was stolen, all the HVAC was stolen. That was a nightmare. And I'm not the day-to-day on that, so I really won't talk to that too much. But that's a really heavy lift, right? So it starts with the acquisition, and you're going to buy real property, and you're going to buy a business. So when you're buying a business, what I look for is a failure in the business that they're not maximizing. And that's the first part of the scenario. And that becomes a big part of my asset management philosophy, is what was the previous operator doing wrong? And how do I maximize that as the asset manager? And how do I make sure that everybody on the team is aligned with improving that? Your fence example is a great illustration. If you don't have fences, you don't have backyards, you can't have any privacy and pride of ownership as a family. And therefore, you can offload that as an asset manager to the tenant to manage. So the process is identifying the holes in the acquisition. Then we go in and with the property manager, I tour the asset that I'm going to hire. I typically make a turnover with property management when I acquire a property because usually the property management company is part of the failure. And that's unfortunate they get tired or the owner takes their eye off the ball or one of a myriad of things may occur. From there, prior to acquisition, we build a budget of what we're going to improve and what we expect the monetization to be. We will put all that in our pro formas and everybody will sign off on what that structure looks like. So I go in and hypothetically, I put a million dollar capital expense budget together and I expect that capital expense to generate a million and a half or $2 million in new revenue over the life of the project. And then we'll measure against that. We obviously create a forecast for vacancy, forecast for occupancy, and where we're going to find the ability to do lift. A lot of what we look at is loss to lease. And what's the loss to lease currently at hand? And how do we raise that loss to lease back to actual 
more money in our pockets for everybody. So we create a plan for month-to-month renewals. We create a plan for renewals that are going over the cycle. And then we create a plan for forced vacancies to do that lift. I don't know if that's kind of what you're asking or if I went down the wrong tangent. No, that's definitely what we're asking. You mentioned something interesting in there and I, it sounded like a rule of thumb, meaning you mentioned that if you put together a million dollar budget that it was going to produce, you know, a million or 1.5 million or 2 million in return on investment. And I'm interested to kind of hear your take on that when you're trying to calculate that or when you're, what exactly does that mean? Well, I don't know if it's a rule of thumb per se, as much as it is, it's part of our analytics on our underwriting. So if, you know, I generally don't syndicate unless I've got a 15 or 20% IRR over course of five years or less. And so inherently, if I'm going to spend a million bucks, I've got to be able to make the 20% IRR on that. And so that's how I look at it. And when we go in, when we're doing a renovation, we know there's going to be change. One of the constants I've learned in business is that you create a battle plan. And then as soon as the first shot goes, the battle plan gets thrown out the way and and you go forward and you evolve, right? So you've got to be dynamic in your change. And so that million dollars to generate a million five in revenue over the life of the process, it's really about what do we do first? So I'm operating an asset right now where we've gone in and obviously with the inflationary pressures we've had, we've had greater inflationary costs on our construction. So I've been able to generate more rent per unit than I was expecting to generate on several of these units, but I haven't been able to go as fast as I have been. So we're evolving right now what our plan is for the next six to 12 months based on where our incomes are and where our expenses are to make sure we still hit our NOI structures. And that's a big part of what I think asset management really is about, is evolving the change to make sure you can still get to your metrics with a variable in there. So one of those illustrations was that we were going to do garages right away. What we found is that our demand is not as aggressive as we thought it was going to be for the units. So the garage renovations we put on hold. And so we're going to look for other income sources that are different and more driven off of the unit renovations than we will off of adding that incremental revenue source for that specific property. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess when it comes to when you're looking at a property, like in that acquisition process, what do you think are some of the most, I guess, low hanging fruit to go after when you're buying a deal? So a lot of the low hanging fruit, I think is perception, right? So if you're coming to a property where the paint's destroyed, where the soffits are worn out, where there's trash everywhere, you can make a big change in a tenant's life by improving those aesthetics really fast and then changing hallways. Some of those things can really allow you to drive more curb appeal, drive more interest, drive more rental behaviors. Another thing that's a really fast and easy low-hanging fruit is operating hours. We actually went in a couple properties where the property management company was never on site. They were always absent. So just putting somebody in the building, in the office, to be there, even if it's 30 hours a week, is easy. More low-hanging fruit is to make sure that the doors operate to the laundry rooms. We've had doors that wouldn't operate, and people couldn't come into the laundry room to actually use the facilities. Those are some pretty simple low-hanging fruits. Obviously, if you're at a full lease basis, if your vac- occupancy is very high, another low-hanging fruit is to take the month to month and obviously put them on to 
leases. Those are real fast and real simple things. More low-hanging fruit with a little bit of cost is to change appliance packages. Pretty easy there to change appliance package from a white to a black and say you've got new appliances and it costs you $700 to $1,000 an OPEX and you can generate an extra $100 a month. Another real low-hanging fruit for us has been adding washer and dryer units where you have a washer-dryer hookup and you go out and you either rent the washers and dryers or buy them and charge an extra $100 or $200 a month, depending on what market you're in. Those are some of the real simple things we've seen. Another low-hanging fruit is water conservation. You go in and you do a water conservation plan and change into low-flow toilets. And if you're paying the utility bills, that can do a 40 to 50% savings right away on your water cost. And for water costs where you're paying 60 or 70 grand a year, it's $35,000. And if you've got a cap rate of a five and you're saving $35,000 a year, you've just increased the, property, the value of your property by 700 grand right then and there. And you're smiling because I was tapping on the calculator, <laughs> right? So, you know, those kinds of things are really easy. And that's one of the things I love about commercial real estate is that by simply spending that money, I can make an incremental lift to the value of the asset to the rest of the marketplace. I like it. Those are all really great ideas. I kind of want to move the conversation into instead of like what it is you're doing, but more into like how. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that you're purchasing in a different market than Denver. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to buy in Denver. I'm trying to buy in Denver. (laughs) (laughs) I just lost a a deal by $750,000 and I've been kicking myself. But, you know, on a $25 million acquisition, $750,000 is the difference between success and failure. And so I'm happy to say, watch that ball go into the catcher's mitt because it's opening day here in Denver and know that I watched that one go by. So I mentioned earlier that we actually buy a business. And so from a process point of view, I am going to be very rigid on budget valuations and budget variations. So I will never approve a change order until I know what happened and why, and why wasn't it in the original scope. And then I will not approve, you know, change orders are a great mystery. They come across and there's no explanation for it. I got a change order recently where it was $1,700 and we were doing vinyl wrapping on buildings and they'd installed new doors and now we had to re-vinyl wrap the doors. And I'm like, why are we doing a change order for vinyl wrap if the contractor's installing doors? Wasn't that part of the bid? So asking questions is a crucial part of this. And I won't approve a draw without cross-checking it against budget. I won't approve a bid without cross-checking against budget. Because my property manager's job is to run the property, and it's my job as the asset manager to ensure that the budgets are fulfilled. And if the budgets aren't fulfilled, then it can be a combination of the two organizations, but ultimately the buck stops with me. And so that's a big part of it for me is to cross-check. It's real simple. You pull up your files, you look at what your budget is, and you see where the variances are, and you check that every week or every month or whatever the according system is. It's like any other business that we run in Fortune 500 companies. You look at a variance, you look at approvals, and you make sure that the process continues to be in line with what the goals initially set are. If you change the goals, I won't change my operating budget mid-year to adjust to actuals. I will still look at what the variables are. And a lot of PMs want to change our operating budget mid-year to match the actuals. But then you're really not having a budget. What you're really having is just a recording of the events that occurred. And a budget is a snapshot in time that you measure against for that period of time to go forward. 
And I think that's crucial to asset management is you, you establish a budget and then you look at the variables therein on a go-to-case-to-case basis. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. And then like, so I'm assuming is the property management company that's performing these actions or do you have like a separate contractor? And then I guess, what does the relationship look like between those parties? And then how did you also find if you use a contractor, the contractor or in property management? Well, so it's gone through multiple variations therein, right? So the property management and contractor integrated model is a pretty common one now. And there's a lot of pros to that. It's turnkey for us. We can control the amount of risk we have as an asset to see timing. The negatives of that are that we sometimes go through budget overruns that we don't know about. There is obviously a little bit of a risk that there's a misalignment of motivations. So you've got to make sure you flush that out. When you hire that property manager and you hire the construction arm, it really is you're hiring a turnkey solution so that you can be less hands-on and know they're going to do it. So the first part of that hiring is to make sure you trust the relationship, make sure you've seen the work they've done in the past, and make sure you have some sort of inside information as to why you can trust them to go forward and execute the business plan. I've got a PM where I've got that very relationship and we hired them because they literally did for one of my co-partners the exact same thing down the street, three miles away, and the success was very strong. We've also got relationships where we have a property manager that owns and operates the property management company, but they do not have a construction arm and they have a list of preferred vendors and those preferred vendors they recommend to us. And I've found that if the property management company has a list of preferred vendors that they know, like, and trust and have a deeper relationship with, you're going to pay a little bit more perhaps. And there's a perhaps in there because you don't necessarily know that you are but you're gonna have an easy flow of communication. And there's a phrase in there that time is money. We've all heard that phrase, but it's true. If your turns are taking too long, the unit is sitting vacant and your opportunity to make money on that vacant unit disappears every day and you can't reclaim those funds. It's like an airline seat taken off with an empty passenger. Hard cost is fixed and you don't make any profit. So time is money in this scenario. I often like to trust the property manager's local vendor relationships because they know better than I do who, what, and where in that marketplace are more important. We've got a property in Alabama, and I'm not going to be the guy that comes in and says, I want you to use this vendor for gates because that's not relevant. I'm not going to know who the gate vendor in Alabama is that we need to install to fix the medical mechanical arm. That's what I'm paying the PM for their expertise in. And when you pay somebody for their expertise, you got to let them use their expertise. So that's a big part of our system is that we oversee and verify. And I'm not going to be the guy on the ground necessarily telling you what vendor to hire. I'm going to say, is it within budget? Is it rational? Yes, no, execute. Are you executing the contracts to the spirit of the contract or is there a lot of variable? If there's a lot of variable, what's happened and why? Just like I do in the business world in a 
Fortune 500 company. You let your sales force go out and do their thing and they come back. If you're a buyer of advertising, you provide the media purchasing to it. You let them provide the advertising. If the contract's fulfilled, you keep going. It's the same scenario. We're buying a business in real estate and multifamily is a business first and a real asset second. That's interesting. I know you've mentioned budgets a lot and I'm assuming that you're coming up with a budget prior to purchase. Absolutely. And so- are you asking the PM and their contractors, either their contractor or other contractors to help you develop that budget? Or are you kind of dictating what you've seen in the past just from experience? Or I guess, how does that kind of formation happen with a new relationship? And I kind of wanted to stress there the new relationship because there's, you know, there's a chance that like you don't get the project or, you know, things you use a different property manager. I mean, I think that that kind of like that first project with a new vendor or PM company can be a little tricky. And I guess that's kind of the nuance that I'm asking here. Yeah, it's definitely tricky, right? Because, you know, when you enter in a new relationship, hope springs eternal. And you want to, you want to trust everybody and you want to believe everywhere they say, and you want to take everybody at face value and you want to really do that. And so what I have found is that as I enter into new relationships, I try to always get it from a referral basis. I always look for the referral in one way, shape or form. I'm not going to cold call a PM out of the blue. I'm going to find a referral. I had a deal that did not come to fruition outside of Kansas State in Manhattan, Kansas. And it was a really cool project. It was an apartment building that was across the street from K-State. You know, and it's a good solid school. As a KU alumni, I'm going to say Rock Chalk Jayhawk national champions and so on and so forth. (laughs) I was going to paint the building the color of KU just to screw with the students. But I didn't have a PM that was in Manhattan. So I asked the broker, hey, who do you know in this town that I should be talking to? And it wasn't the broker listing the property. It was a different broker. And that broker introduced me to a guy that I've had tremendous discussions with and dialogue with. And he toured the property with us, went on due diligence with us. We wrote a budget hand in hand. During the due diligence time period, his uncovering of some problems in the building led to us terminating the deal. We had built a budget in tandem. We'd walk the units. He knew the units from previous past. I'd gotten an endorsement from a broker that I knew, liked, trusted, and had done business with. And this PM was able to uncover a problem that we didn't see in the beginnings of due diligence. He actually, as an example of creating budgets, we were going to take four twos and convert them into two ones. And the lift was going to be about $150 a door. And we were going to add 17 doors to the project. So he actually had a friend in the marketplace who was their architect. And that architect had previously been the building code guy at the city. And he's like, the city won't let you do this because the parking rules are X. And then there's asbestos in this building that has been covered over. And if you do this, you're going to do asbestos abatement. And right there, those two words are bad in the same sentence. And then he said, and since the building was built in this window, you can't do it without putting in sprinklers in the entire building. And so those pieces of inside information, I'm still heard about this. They killed the deal. And that's where we built a budget together because we were saying, okay, we can do one. We can do the other, but we can't do both because the budgets were going to be exponentially larger than the returns were going to be. And had I 
not use that third party to help me build those budgets and to have a good business plan from the get-go, I would have gotten into that deal and gotten in over my head and my investors would have received mediocre at best returns. So I think that's a great illustration of how you go at it and you talk about it from the beginning and you build a business plan that you then operate at scale. That's a great story. <laughs> it depends on your point of view. <laughs> I mean, like sticking with your underwriting and, you know, yeah, you missed out on the deal, but, and you could have easily taken it just to, you know, have deal flow and right those acquisition fees. But knowing and like, being true to your team and your investors, it's a great example of, you know, sticking with conservative underwriting. So kudos. Yeah. And you know, as an asset manager, I do not have a fiduciary duty as an asset manager. There is none in the state of Colorado. However, as a broker, I do. And so I got trained a long time ago in the fiduciary requirements of a broker or an attorney or anybody else. And I think it's crucial that we operate from that mentality that says, if my name's on it, I have to make sure I fulfill the promises that I've made and the covenant I've made with my investors. And so that's a core defining thought process that I have. As the asset manager, it's my job to make sure that the project gets over the finish line. If I'm going to sponsor one and I'm going to asset manage it, it's going to get over the finish line. It's going to be ugly and, and circuitous, but it's going to get there. I think yeah. Adrian and I completely agree with that mindset. And it's, you know, yeah, I just like hearing stories like that. So yeah. we've kind of talked about your underwriting and budgeting. And so how do you organize and keep track of all of these moving parts? You know, when you're working on unit turns, when you're like, and you have all of these different budgets and all of these line items and you're getting change orders and property management's telling you that they've got something that needs to happen right away. And <laughs> I had a mentor in another world teach me a long time ago that nothing, absolutely nothing has to be decided today. And that is antithetical to the idea that speed is the most rewarding thing. So just because someone tells you that it's urgent, it has to be done today, doesn't mean that it has to be done today for me. Now, there are instances where a fire or there's no HVAC functioning for a tenant and it's 10 degrees outside. Those are time-constrained issues. But in the macro, first, you have to recognize that somebody else's priorities don't have to be your own. It might sound like an obstructionist point of view, but it's really not. It's Take the time to cross-check your details. From a process and system management point of view, it's an ongoing thing. I'm actually getting ready to hire some more staff to help me with some of those processes. There is third-party, like my company uses Resmin and we use Appfolio. And so we cross-check our property software management things. We keep pretty good records of what's going on. We memorialize conversations and we keep a database. So those things always help. And it's pretty easy to say, okay, I approved X on this date. And then, you know, I do all of my approvals via email. I don't approve them verbally. Or if I do approve them verbally, I will then follow up with an email. And I will memorialize it that way so that there's a trail. Because that way you don't have a finger pointing that he said, she said, as the systems. I am starting to develop some systems for actually cross-checking and tabulating budget versus actual on a weekly KPI. 
And that's one of those things, the third-party apps I'm using aren't sufficient for me to do the KPIs I want. So I'm going to develop some dashboards and I'm going to hire some assistants to help me develop this dashboard so I can come in on a Monday morning and know where I am on my goals. I'm just curious, what kind of format are your budgets? Are you still doing it in Excel or do some of these programs have the ability or capability of putting that stuff in? I'm doing it all by hand right now. And my job, my quest for 2022 is to get to automation. So I've got Excel spreadsheets that populate into some KPI dashboards. And one of my to-dos for the back half of 22 is to hire a programmer. If anybody's listening that wants to be the programmer to do this for me, please reach out. <laughs> it's to hire a programmer to automate some of this. Because one of the challenges that we have at this size, you know, I'm not big enough to have complete scale. And there's still a lot of, roll my sleeves up literally and get it done myself. And I no longer want to work 70 hours a week. I want to work 20. I got trained in the idea of the work hard, great, but then work smart. And so I'd much rather be able to work 20 hours nonstop without breathing than work 40 hours where I take a cup of coffee every hour and a half. And I, I sit down and I read my email for three hours. Then I get sucked into Facebook and then I get sucked into LinkedIn and then I get sucked. No, I want to go in and focus like Tiger Woods on the fairway and, and nail the shot and keep moving. So Speaking I'm working of Tiger, on that. He's about to, to do that, right? It's, that's why I had to use <laughs> it, right? It's great. Yes. <laughs> Resiliency uh, writ large, right? <laughs> so you mentioned processes and automation and AJ and I both love both of those things. So I'm very interested in what your thoughts are on like key processes in asset management? And then what do you think can be automated? All the reporting should be automated, right? And literally, if you have the reporting automated right, the comparison to budget actual should be automated as well. All of the stuff that I'm doing by hand, that's me drilling in and cross tabulating report A to report B, all of that can be automated. And that's the goal I have for the back half of 22. The asset management part that can't be automated is the people. The weekly calls with the staff to make sure that they're happy, you know, the drop-in unannounced visit to see what's going on. You can't automate that stuff, but you do that from a management and a leadership point of view to, to see how the staff as to see how the team is. And I had a partner talk to me and I'm not good at bringing gifts. I got trained a long time ago that bringing gifts was bribing your clients. And so I'm not a gift giver by definition because it's to something I carry on. But she got me to start bringing food to the asset, to the property managers when I show up on site. And it became, it started to become a joke because now all I do is I bring in donuts. And my property manager said to me last time, David, I don't need any more donuts. I like wine. (laughs) And I thought that was great because what that really means is that we've got this relationship where she can tell me her needs. And that's the part that can't be automated is building that relationship where something can happen. And being able to ask questions that don't feel like you're stepping on their toes. So that's interesting on, on the people side. And so can you describe a little bit more like, and I know we touched on property management and whether they have in-house construction or if you're leveraging mm-hmm. contractors, but as far as people go and focusing on people, who are those people and kind of how do you have your asset management team structured and then how do they interact with third party and yeah what's your org chart look like so my org chart right now is really flat it's me and i'm reporting to my co-partners 
And then I'm also reporting to our investors. And so I'm in charge of investor relations. As far as third-party vendors go, water conservation is a good illustration of this. I just did a water conservation recently. So I connected the water conservation team with the on-site property management team and they turned it over and I didn't get involved at all. I get an invoice, I pay the invoice, I move on. Property management, we hold a call weekly. We go through the questions of vacancy, delinquency, issues at hand, tenant items, the next set of projects that we're undertaking, project status. We then go to construction and we go through where we are, what's happening, what are the needs, what are the requirements, what are the shortfalls, what are the wins. We then create plans accordingly for each of those. From a communication point of view, direct communication to the PM, to the regional, and the owner of the PM company are always crucial. And every PM organization has their own structure for how they like to do business. I've got some that don't want me talking to anybody but the regional. I've got some that don't want to hear unless there's a problem. And I've got some that send me updates on the first of the month, some that send me updates 60 days later. So you have to learn what the PM structure is and they're the boots on the ground. So they've got some expertise that you must learn to appreciate and value and listen to. And I think the key to that is asking good questions, you know, asking the questions. We had a vandal steal a card exchange machine in a laundromat in a laundry room. And we have had a really hard time finding a replacement for that. So I'm asking questions. And from that questioning, we came up with a solution. We couldn't buy the new card machine in a cost-effective manner, but we can buy the cards and we can have the tenants come into the office and buy the preloaded cards from us for cash. So that was a problem that we solved by having that flat management structure where the PM and I on site talk through, hey, if we don't solve this problem, what's going to happen? One of the suggestions was just give them free laundry. That'll be a tenant incentive. And I'm like, no, we're not doing that because if we do that, we can't take it away. And so that's where we create problem solving from that flat architecture. From To the earlier question about how do we outsource stuff, we want to outsource as much of the reporting as possible. And we want to outsource some of this aggregation of data as possible, but we can't outsource that relationship and that problem solving. I was going to ask, so you said you're at like a thousand doors. I mean, I'm assuming is that over like seven to 12 properties or something like that? Or are you you larger? No, it's six properties. Six properties. So and those meetings that you have weekly are probably an hour, two hours a piece? An hour. And so I'm not necessarily the primary asset manager on all six of those properties at one time. And I'm a co-GP. So there are other people depending on what the property is. And so I'm not spending an entire day of my week on just asset management calls. If I did, I would have less hair than (laughs) I do. That's where I was kind of going with this. But that's a cool, that's a, you, you would be able to have an employee do in the near future. Yeah. That's one of my growth models is I actually want to get to vertical integration where I'm running the PM part of the business and we're running our own PMs on site. And the reason for that is that if you can create the right culture, some of these problem solving issues go away and you create training, you create a pipeline for growth. And what I've witnessed is that if you can get to vertical integration, you have a greater control over budget. You have a greater control over decision-making and you have a more uniform approach to problem solving. But that takes a lot of scale and I don't have that scale yet. 
goals. Those are awesome. <laughs> yeah. I like right. It. I've got a whole bunch <laughs> yeah, of them written sure. on my, you see a wall behind me and there's a whole conference room with nothing but whiteboards and posty 20 by thirties with goals on them. <laughs> so there's a vision cool. to go forward. Chris, do you have any other questions or should we get to the last four? I think we should dive into the last four. Awesome. All right, David, we've got our last four questions here. I'm going to start us off with what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25 year old self. I kind of got a tee up on this question yesterday and I thought about it and I couldn't pick one. So I picked four and I'm going to rattle them off real fast. <laughs> Getting into real estate early. I didn't get into it as an operator or an owner fast enough. Value relationships over transactions. I've kind of talked about that a little bit already. It's okay to lose. It's not okay to knock it up to wit Tiger Woods, right? He's gotten crushed a couple of times. He keeps getting up. So I think those are really big. And the other one was try and fail often and then get back up. And I think those are crucial. I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts and the guy said, don't buy expensive cars. Great illustration, right? But try and fail. Yeah. Cool. All right. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor and what sparked that interest? Well, when I saw this one, I really started thinking about it and it, I didn't realize it, but my first one was actually mowing yards in middle school. You know, and it's a great example where your dad gives you a lawnmower and then he complains about you using it on somebody else's <laughs> property. And then he wants you to, then he's like, you know, you need to pay me. And I'm like, no, dad, I'm mowing a yard. But from there, I actually ended up opening a media buying agency when I was selling advertising for, to provide products to my company where they didn't have product. And that was a great lever for me. Then I became a realtor. Then I became a broker. And then I jumped into multifamily. So I've kind of been doing this since I was 12. So it's been in my blood a long time. I just didn't realize what it was called until I actually no longer got a W-2 paycheck. Nice. Yeah. And making that step from the W-2 over into the entrepreneurial world is always the difficult one. I know a lot it, of people face that challenge. It is. And I realized that I was a 100% commissioned sales professional in the W-2 job for 17 years. Yeah. So I really, the entire time, I've always made my living based on the success of my work. So there's no difference in that. It's just a matter of what's the support mechanism look like. Yeah. 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 Well, it's believing in yourself and believing that you're going to be able to perform. That's really what it comes down to is if you believe enough in yourself, like, and you're willing to put in the work, then it will get done. So. Yeah. And one of my mentors a long time taught me that confidence is having success and repeating it over and over again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like it. All right. Next question. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Well, I studied advertising in college. So when I graduated from college, I actually had a degree. I went into the field of studying and that really shaped my career for the first 20 years. And I gave me an expertise. And what I learned from that was that I became great at what I did by recognizing and learning something and then using that as an expertise. And so I sell from an expertise channel. I sell consultatively with an expertise background. And that's what I've done my entire career. And then I got into real estate on the side and I limped into real estate from the side, but that formal training then taught me the informal to become an expert. It then taught me the informal of how to make sales, which then taught me how to make deals, which allows me to work with brokers on a very good basis. I can communicate with them in their language, which is crucial to buying property. And then it taught me how to manage people. So I've had a lot of informal training, all those in the Fortune 500 world. And that led to where I am today, where I can use all those skills, analysis, leadership, training, sales, and decision-making criteria to actually be able to own and operate a real business. Yeah, I love 
how you mentioned speaking to brokers in their language. And it's an art form, being able to modify your language to the appropriate situation so that you're deemed appropriate and experienced. So yeah, one of those keys to communication is talk to your audience and the audience's vernacular. Yeah. Okay. What was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? Man, you guys are into the superlative, biggest, worst, first. So I got two that I thought of. When I was making big money in the advertising world, I worked in Denver in a place just right next to what is now known as the Highlands. At the time, I could buy a 1940s and 50s bungalow for 50K a door. They are currently trading for between $750 and a million dollars a lot. I didn't buy them because they were slums. And I didn't want to be a slumlord. Had I bought them in 2000, I wouldn't be here today because I'd be on the beach retired, getting my feet sunburned, or I'd be (laughs) at opening day. So I didn't follow the path of progress. That was a big mistake. And it hurts when I think about that. And the other one is kind of along the similar lines, but it's not acting faster and trusting my gut when I see something. My gut told me to buy those houses and I didn't trust my gut. And my gut told me to buy those houses from 2000 to 2008 or so, and I didn't do it. And then the other one that was really crucial to me was I finally learned over the course of my career that making mistakes does not mean stupidity. I used to think that making mistakes meant you were stupid. And making mistakes actually means that you're human. So all of that really goes back to that first not buying slums when they were in the path of progress and not seeing that. That was a hit on your confidence because... I don't know if it was a hit on my confidence as much as it was. It's a great illustration of missing an opportunity because I didn't see the future. And I was too focused in the day today to see, wow, the Highlands is across the street, across I-25 from downtown. At the time, Denver was in a suburban life cycle. They're now in an urban life cycle. It was coming in 2000, but I didn't see it the same way. And now those houses that are across the street from downtown on I-25 are an eight-minute commute to some of the most expensive real estate in town. When Coors Field opened, and I think it opened in 1995 or 96, I can't remember which it was. There's an urban infill baseball park, and it brought in a massive amount of regentrification. And I was still on the cusp of that, and I let that pass. And it was missing the changes that were occurring in my home market, not paying attention to them. Uh, Woulda, shoulda, coulda. Yep. 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 Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. If our listeners or, or maybe a programmer out there wants to get a hold of you, uh, <laughs> how should they get a hold of you? My website's macassets.com, M-A-C assets. And you can sign up there to connect with me at any time and love to talk to everybody. Or obviously on LinkedIn, David McElwain and on Facebook as well. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being on the show. This was a ton of great information about asset management. I know that you answered some of our questions and really appreciate it. Thanks. Hey, my pleasure. David, I really learned a lot and just really appreciate your approach of looking at real estate as a business and as a piece of land. So I loved it. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN. 
your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.